Welcome to episode 340 of We Don't Die Radio. I'm your host, Sandra Champlain, author of the international best-selling book called We Don't Die, A Skeptic's Discovery of Life After Death. Our guest today is Lee Whitting. Lee served as a chaplain at a major Maine hospital. Currently pastors, the Union Street Brick Church in Bangor, Maine, and spent many years as publications director for the International Association for Near-Death Studies, also known as IAMS, which is the world's pioneer organization for what happens after the soul leaves the body. Lee is the host of NDE Radio, which airs every Monday on Talk Zone Radio, which explores near-death experiences and similar encounters with the other side. You can find out more about the show and listen to Lee with 345 episodes as of today at IANS.org. And then over on the left, click on the link that says IANS NDE Radio. Lee, a warm welcome to We Don't Die Radio. Thank you, Sandra. It's great to be here. Great to be with you. I'm very, very excited. You're someone I've really been interested in interviewing for a long, long time. Not only because of your story, but you've heard a lot of stories. And I look forward to interviewing you on my show. Oh. So it'll be turnaround. Oh. Turnabout is fair play, they say. And they say that. And we have similar listeners, I think, really looking for evidence. And so many people love or are interested in near-death experience stories. But enough about yes. that. Let's talk about you. You are hailing from Maine today. I am. This is where I've lived since the 1970s. Oh, nice. um, and uh, right now, it's uh, uh, as we're recording this, the sun is getting close to setting over Penobscot Bay, and I'm looking out across uh, uh, at a, at a uh, lighthouse, Fort Point Lighthouse. So it's a beautiful day in Maine. Oh, it sounds great. And we're recording this mid-May 2020 when we are mostly all housebound with our uh, COVID-19 pandemic. So if you hear us referring to lockdown or something, that's why. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. So Lee, how does your story start out? I know you are somebody who's experienced a near-death experience, but if you yeah, share a little bit about you and your story and... Okay. Yeah, well, the, the last time I did this, someone asked me, well, what was your life before your NDE, which happened when I was seven? And mm -hmm. I had to think about it for a bit. And I remembered a story my mother had told me that I was born under a sign. And she t told this sort of as a joke because uh, I'd been born during the war in a Salvation Army hospital in Manhattan. My dad was off going through traumatic experiences in World War II. And there was a sign painted on the ceiling above the delivery table that said, Jesus saves. So she would say to me, and it would sound very profound, you, you know you were born under a sign. And then turned out that's the sign that's that the she sign. was talking about. But uh, there were other things that happened before, uh, before I had my near-death experience that were kind of interesting. Uh, there was a, an event where my, uh, soon after I'd come home from the, from the hospital, uh, my mother saw her grandmother, my great-grandmother's ghost, kind of floating in the air uh, by the kitchen ceiling. And although she said she didn't say anything to me, she said, I took it as a good sign that she was welcoming you home into the family. Mm -hmm. And so there was that. And the other thought that had occurred to me when they had asked me this question was, I had a very uh, shiny wooden painted rocking horse. That was my favorite toy. And my mother told me when I was, I don't know, three years old or so, I would sit there with, and it was, uh, I can remember 
very glossy, shiny paint. But I would sit there for hours with a paintbrush and a and a jar of water and just paint the paint to make it shinier still. Oh. And she, she said, I was really fascinated with the, with the colors of this thing. And I thought, you know, the descriptions that Andy ears bring back with them when they've seen the other side, they talk about the color and the iridesc- uh, iridescence of the color. And I thought, I wonder if I was at that point thinking about what I had left and what I was aspiring to regain by just brightening these colors up here on Earth. Maybe. Could be. Anyway, when my dad came home, uh, and he was fairly shocked by some of the things he saw. He'd, he'd been first in the Merchant Marine, and they'd sunk a, a ship. They were convoying materiel to England before we were even in the war. And the ship right in front of him had been torpedoed. And he was the chief medical officer as well as being a chief petty officer on the ship. And the rules were you could not stop and pick up survivors. You had to keep on sailing because if you stopped, then you would get torpedoed. And so I, I thought about that later on what, you know, what kind of traumatic thing it would be like to, to watch, you know, your, you know, your fellow Americans in the water still alive, but inevitably going to drown because you couldn't stop to save them so anyway he came home he built a little cottage on a little island in new jersey in branchville new jersey on a little lake called kima lake so we have this little island on this little lake with a little footbridge that went over to it and he got a kit from uh, uh, sears sold all kinds of houses back then. You yes. could buy it, get form, and put it together. You could, you could buy a Victorian house and do something elaborate, or you could buy a little cottage. He could afford to buy a little cottage, so he built this cottage on this island. And things happened on this island. I mean, this was a way he could get away from. He worked in New York, but he, in the city, but he could get. It was a place for him to get away. I think when things got too crazy, and we'd go there, um, and. That's where my younger sister, Anne, one day saw a fairy run right by her. She was, I think, maybe four years old. And she saw this little creature and she said, the fairy stopped and looked at me. And all of a sudden she realized I could I could see her (laughs) and uh, and was very startled and ran off. That was that that was her her little vision there. Mm -hmm. My vision came as a as a result of being very stupid seven years old, not knowing how to swim. And I waded out too far into the lake and I, I knew the structure out there. I don't know why I was doing it. Um, but I went too far. My mother had just gone into the cottage to, uh, to change. I think she was changing to, to go to church to get it, putting on a, a dress to go to church anyway. So I waded out too far and the, it went out gradually and then it drops right off. And when, it, when it drops off, I went down and then I came up and I screamed and fortunately my mother heard me, although she was in the cottage. And then I, because I screamed, all the air was out of my lungs and I sank down to the bottom of the lake. But suddenly I found myself up in a birch tree by the cottage door, watching as my mother ran down the steps and ran down to the shore and dove in. She knew about where I was, hauled me out threw me face down over a log, which she was then compressing my back, trying to get the water out of my lungs. And, uh, 
sort of inadvertently invented CPR because there was no CPR in those days. It was, but the log was doing chest compressions. And so, so I'm sitting up there and I, my, uh, remember, remembrance of this was that I could see there was a place that I could go. There were no advisors. There were no angels, no other beings around. I heard no voices, but I, I knew that I had to make a decision and I could see how uh, agonized my mother was over this whole event, that she was desperate. And so even though I could feel myself drawn, <laughs> you know, inevitably where we're all drawn to in the end, uh, I was, I, I decided I better stick around and I was back in my body. Um, the, uh, the thing about it was that it seemed not at all surprising to me. And I think maybe that's, uh, has something to do with your age, you know, when, when you're young enough, you, you have residual memories of the fact that we're not, that we just aren't born and die. And that's it, that we, that we come from a place and we return to that same place. And it's a very important place. In fact, it's much more important than the place we're in right now. And yet we're here for a purpose as well. So, Anyway, it all seemed to make perfect sense to me. My religious training up to that point was just Presbyterian Sunday school where I we did, you know, colored in pictures of Jesus and and heard uh, the traditional Bible stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in any event, I, I never even felt like I had to talk about it. I didn't. I didn't want to talk to my mother about it because I was afraid it would upset her. I could tell that she was upset enough at that point. And so I sort of repressed it. And it wasn't because I felt uncomfortable about it. It was because I felt that, well, it was a very natural thing to, I mean, that's what happens when you die. I mean, I, that was my understanding of it right from the get-go. But it changed my whole perspective on what was interesting to me. And I I got interested in astronomy, which I'd never been interested in before. Uh, I begged my mother for a telescope. She finally broke down and bought me a, a little three and a half inch reflecting telescope from a catalog from Hayden Planetarium, which was my favorite place on Earth mm-hmm. in those days. My birthday request year after year was, Mom, take me to the Hayden Planetarium. I want to see the show. And it was usually the Christmas show because I was born in late November. And so. It, you know, it was always something quite dramatic and also connected in those days. They were, they felt freer to talk about religion in those settings. So, um, finally I said, I, I just, I couldn't get enough of the Hayden planetarium. So I built my own in the attic. I went all around the town, Cranford, New Jersey, and I collected big pieces of cardboard from, from shipping containers and refrigerator boxes and, I built a skyline. I had a, a dimmer with the lights that would bring up sunrises and sunsets wow. behind the, and I had this projector of it that my mom got me from the Hayden Planetarium, which would project. It was uh, just a very simple thing. It was a, a globe with accurate holes for the for the northern hemisphere skies, and a little single light bulb. But you, it had a dimmer, so you could bring it up and bring it down. So as the sun was going down, I could brighten the stars. <laughs> and I'd write these scripts. I'd write stories about, oh, what happens when the Earth is destroyed by a, by a huge meteor? You know, what happened back in, you know, well, 65 million A.D. when the dinosaurs got wiped out? 
things like that. I don't know that I knew that story back then, but, but in any event, I, you know, there was, I always had this fascination with the end, end times as well. And I'll tell you a little about mm-hmm. that later. But, um, anyway, my mom was my only audience. She'd come up. I had a mattress on the floor. She'd lie down on the mattress on the floor, look at the ceiling and, and, you know, I would go through this whole script, this whole scenario. How great. And, uh, <laughs> it was really wonderful. Uh, she probably thought I was a little wacky, but uh, but I was very interested in it. My dad, on the other hand, went out and bought a college text on astronomy, which was so beyond me at that point in my life that I just it, – it almost – it almost turned me off to astronomy. It was so overwhelming, but mm-hmm. I did I did sort of wade through it. But it was it was it wasn't the right book to buy me at that point in time. Anyway, so that was uh, that's pretty much uh, you know that was my childhood. And then uh, when I went to, um, to I went to Columbia University in New York. Uh, my dad, before the semester started, he gave me 50 bucks to take a bus. We were living in Pittsburgh at that point. He said, go to New York, get used to the city. He said, uh, otherwise, it'll be a total distraction and you'll flunk out of Columbia. <laughs> <laughs> he was probably right. So um, uh, so I got on the bus and I went to New York and I, I, I still had a little money left over. Uh, and I went around to a, an employment agency and I got a job pushing racks around in the garment district. And in the garment district was this hotel called the Chelsea hotel, which you've probably heard of, mm-hmm. which, which was a cheap hotel. In fact, it was full of artists and musicians and poets. And it was sort of the place where, uh, the beat generation was turning into the hippie generation. This is in the sixties. But uh, even that proved to be too expensive. After a while, I had to move into the YMCA. But while I was there, it was very, it was a very interesting thing. And then I started in the fall. I went to Columbia and I studied um, as a minor. I studied um, Eastern studies, Eastern uh, religion, especially and Buddhism, especially. But the text, the fr- I think it was the first day, the first class. The professor came in. They had a wonderful department. He said, what does this remind you of? And he took a passage from the Mahabharata, which is the the ancient Indian text. And and it was a perfect description of a nuclear attack, of of a nuclear war that took place, you know, thousands of years ago, apparently. And they talk about the, the flash of light, the flying machines and the flash of light that was brighter than the sun. And then the, all the animals were running into the uh, water to wash the poison off their bodies. And, and you know, the flesh was melting. And it was, it, it was amazing. And it was, uh, well, when I was in high school, I'd done a report on um, Hiroshima. I was very interested in Hiroshima and, and uh, John Hersey's book on, uh, on that. And so, so this was very fascinating to me. And so I, then as a, and this has always been kind of the undertone in my life as well, being interested in what, you know, what, what's the, is that, is this just cyclical or do we have a final end? Are we on a linear path, which is basically the Christian story as opposed to a circular path, which is the Eastern way of looking at history. Um, but anyway, uh, I went through to jump ahead. I went through Columbia, um, graduated i got my first job was um 
working in Harlem as a caseworker for New York City, uh, helping um, mainly the elderly because there was no Medicaid, Medicare. Uh, there was no federal program to help the poor who were also sick and needed hospitalization. So my, my caseload was entirely black people, mostly women, mostly sick. And uh, I would drive up to, I lived on 106th Street in a, actually a Puerto Rican neighborhood, but I would drive up to up a, north of 125th Street. My vehicle was a uh, 1951 Buick Hearse with a racing stripe down the oh, back. Wow. So people got to know me. That's a visual. <laughs> <laughs> it was an amazing vehicle. You had to start. You had, you had to start braking about a half a block before you wanted to come oh, to a stop, no. because the thing was so heavy. It's and a at beast. the same time, yes, it was a beast. And at the same time, the brakes were shot, and it was so. But anyway, and uh, and I had this amazing revelation because I'd grown up a middle class kid, and and these were the poorest people in New York City and they were so lovely and they were so kind to me and I never got hassled once either on the street or or in the buildings you know where I was making my visits um it was uh it was really enlightening anyway uh after that uh I was married at that point had a um two-year-old son by the age of three um, we had saved, my wife was working, I was working. We'd saved enough money to go to Europe um, and buy a VW camper, which you could buy for $2,500 in those days, brand new, um, state-of-the-art, <laughs> which was a fold-out bed and, and a little thing they called an icebox. That's all you need. <laughs> That's all you needed. And we spent uh, nine, ten months just dri driving around Europe and the Middle East and um, and mainly looking at religious sites because I I had this fascination where we'd lived in New York I was just a, a stone's throw from the um, uh, Saint John the Divine which is an Episcopal Church in New York it's actually the largest cathedral either in America or in the world I can't remember oh, but it, it's it's a it's a huge huge building and it's very dedicated to social outreach stuff mm -hmm. and so. That combined with my interest in the situation in Harlem at the time was um, so. Anyway, I, I, I was visiting all these churches. Um, I preferred Romanesque. The uh, Saint John the Divine started as a Romanesque imitation, and then then they went into Gothic. So it was kind of a mix in that church. And, and they're still not done building it; they're still working on it. <laughs> but um, it was uh, it was an amazing experience in Europe. We lived uh, for a while in a, prior, a priory that um, was built in the Middle Ages. We were there for a few weeks. and uh, But anyway, uh, when I came back, and if I'm, if I'm wandering off the subject, just redirect me, but I'm telling you my life story here, basically. Um, when, we, when I came back, we lived in Philadelphia. My wife had started at, at um, studying Greek in Bryn Mawr, and she finished there. And then uh, we got caught up in the first um, Earth Day and and the whole back to the land movement. Mm -hmm. And that's when we moved. That's when we moved to Maine. Bought an old farmhouse that was haunted. 
and I can tell you about that haunting if you'd like. <laughs> it was it was an amazing old building. It hadn't been lived in in probably 40 years, and it was falling down. The roof was shot. The siding was, you know, falling off, and mm-hmm. uh, the barn had complete was completely a, a, a loss. It was it was too bad because it was a huge barn and a major project to take apart, but. We did that, and we cleared a field that had been uh, farmed at one time, cleared all the alder out, and started a big garden down there and had a um, roadside stand. And uh, now at this point, my daughter had been born too, so we we had um, Matthew and Kristen. And uh, we had goats and chickens and pigs and a horse for them to ride. And yeah, and... uh, so um, I did that, and I helped start a magazine called Farmstead, which was a main organic farming and gardening magazine. And we were all doing our back-to-the-land thing and, and having a great deal of fun and going totally broke because <laughs> mm-hmm. there's no money in your roadside stands, let me tell you, unless you're doing it on such a scale that it would have been beyond us to, to accomplish. So uh, So then – I had to get a job and went through a series of jobs. I had a real estate office when got a license and, and, uh, to make some money. And then, uh, at one point I was the editor publisher of the casting Patriot, the town weekly newspaper mm-hmm. did that for several years. And, uh, and then I got interested in going back to school and, uh, we, um, um, my second wife, Charlene and I, both went to the University of Maine and we got a, a uh, degrees in Master of Arts in Liberal Studies. And she studied dance and I studied theater and she studied uh, uh, some other stuff. I studied philosophy, creative writing. I took a course in creative writing. And my, but my final uh, project there was, uh, we were in the 1990s at this point, was this recurring interest in the end of the world. And I I, that was my final thesis was about a story that comes out of the Bible about um, the man who can't die. Jesus, um, I mean, it, some people have called this is a, a true myth. Uh, I don't know if it's a true story, but it's a true myth about um, was it Lazarus? Because Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, so how could he die again? Right. Or, or was it John? Who there's a line in the Bible about uh, if I say John will never die, then then who are you to question me or something along those lines that Jesus said, and then they they try to clarify and say of course John was would would die, but who knows? I mean if it was the same John that wrote Revelation, that would have been quite a long time after you would have expected him to die. And there are stories through, throughout the Middle Ages of a person who came and went, and they thought, well, you know, 100 years later, he'd show up again. So my, my whole story was about this person who had been condemned to never die, who yearned to die because he knew there was a, a place to go. Mm-hmm. And for those people that are afraid of death, <laughs> I, I can only say uh, there's a lot more in life to be afraid of than there is, you know, uh, in death. And um, so he explores, my character in this in this thing I wrote, explores all of the um, various alternatives 
the alternative stories from all the different cultures about how the world ends because he figures when the world ends, he's got, got to die. Right. And, uh, and actually I turned that into a radio program, which, uh, I found the tape a couple of years back. This, this really, I mean, this was an old tape. <laughs> this is an old cassette tape. And the engineer at Talkzone was able to turn it into two, two episodes on NDE radio. So if anyone wants to hear the story about, about this guy. That's pretty great. I'm hearing as you're telling the story, how you're laying the foundation for what you're doing now. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm getting there mm -hmm. and I will try to get there a little, little faster. Are we doing okay on time? Oh, we're doing fine. Okay. Anyway. Um, there were a couple of things I brought back from Europe. One was an interest in, in, in architecture. I, you know, I'd looked at all these churches. And so when the time came, the kids had, had grown up and we sold the farm and I built this house um, that I'm talking to you from now, uh, back in the, in 1980. And, uh, it has a tower on it and the tower is, uh, designed to be representative of the stages in your life. And so it begins in the basement, which is the, like a, an exercise room, physical, it's the physical. And the room that I'm talking to you from now is the library. And, uh, that's other people's ideas in their books. And then the next story up is, um, uh, a place to do creative writing. Now I haven't held true to these various positions to do all the stuff I do, but, but this is the idea I had when I built it. And then above that is, uh, a, a room with no windows and it's just, it's just, uh, dark except for some indirect light from the top. Because if you go up the ladder to the top, you come into a space that has uh, a roof with the same proportions as the Great Pyramid. And, uh, and when I first built it, it was all glass. But it got to be too leaky, so I, I, had, to, I had to revise the way it was done. But it's got windows on all four sides oh, looking out. That's incredible. Sounds incredible. And, and that's where you, know, you go from the dark, the dark mm -hmm. place of meditation. You ascend this narrow ladder to the place of um, enlightenment, mm -hmm. literally enlightenment, because there's light streams in from all four windows. And it's a place to um, sleep. And if, if you ever want to have vivid dreams, come visit me, because that space up there is really uh, powerful. Um, okay, I got sidetracked again. So anyway, um, when I finally, when we finally got out of um, our program at the University of Maine, we decided ultimately that that wasn't exactly what we wanted and so charlene and i went to the seminary together you know, bangor seminary and she uh studied um she also was very good in greek and hebrew and she studied she took a, a master's in theological studies i went for the for the uh, masters they call it an mdiv master of divinity uh, not really with the intention of becoming a pastor, but that's what I did. And I pastored a church uh, in Searsport, Maine, for a while. But then, um, and this was actually happening simultaneous, I, there was this big old church in downtown Bangor, Maine. It had been closed up except for an occasional use for years. In, in a way, it was like my old farmhouse. 
it needed a renovation. It needed needed a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and every time I'd go to the seminary, I'd be driving past this place, and it had this ratty old for sale sign that had been there for years. And finally, I said, you know, I really ought to find out about that. So I called the broker, who happened to also be the, the um, historian for Bangor Architecture. So she and I hit it off right away. Because believe it or not, Bangor, Maine has some amazing buildings in it. She said, oh, this is a classic church. She said, this is the most beautiful uh, example of Italian architecture in uh, churches in, as far as she felt in Maine entirely. And she said, they're about to ter- turn into Section 8 housing, you know, tear out the, the uh, leaded glass windows and, you know, do all sorts of horrible things to it. She said, if, if you can find any way at all to, to buy this church. Oh, I said, well, I haven't even seen it. So she said, well, I'll take you through it. I walked through the door and I looked up and it was the most beautiful. It was, uh, it was built as a Unitarian church, actually, originally. But beautiful leaded glass windows that were um, no pictures in them, just uh, amazing colors, um, greens and yellows and um Long story short, we were able to get it because the people that wanted to buy it for Section 8 housing couldn't get the Historic Commission's, Bangor Historic Commission said, you can't take out the stained glass windows. They said, well, how are we going to be able to put apartments in? And you can't have apartments with fixed stained glass windows. They said, well, that's, you can't change the exterior look of the church. They said, well, the Unitarian said, we'll never be able to sell the building. And I'd be at these meetings, and I'd in the back of the room, I'd raise my hand. I'd say, well, I'll buy it. I'll buy it. <laughs> and uh, anyway, we, we, they were able to take back a mortgage, and we were able to work it all out. In the long, long run, they were happy that we'd done this because we made it into a really amazing uh, building. We, we did uh, theater. We turned the – there was a, an organ loft. We turned it into a stage and uh, Charlene wrote passion plays from every gospel. We did a lot of uh, religious theater. Um, we did a lot of provocative shows. The, the last one we did was uh, Wit, which is not one that Charlene had written, but uh, an amazing story about a woman who's dying uh, of ovarian cancer mm. and what she's going through in the in the process and how brutally the medical uh, system can treat you in, and when you're really desperately in times of need. Lee, would uh, you tell us just how you, because I, I'm, I okay. know this is going to go into how you got interested in IANS and started working with them. And I'm just wondering right. if that became your Union Street well, brick, brick Church. As a, as a corollary to the Brick Church, which of course was not going to make us ever any money. Mm-hmm. We, uh, I took a job as chaplain at Eastern Maine Medical Center. And immediately, almost immediately, I started hearing, you know, I'd visit people who had coded. I'd visit people who had the families of people who had, uh, had uh, amazing experiences. And I started hearing all of these stories about near-death experience. And it was taking me back every time to my own experience and how powerful uh, – these stories could be, you know, just remarkable tales about uh, uh, 
people who, you know, well, one simple one that I, I often use as an example, a woman who had, who had just been revived. I went in and I said, well, did you see anything that while you were, <laughs> while you were on the other side, that was my sort of lighthearted way of provoking people mm-hmm. to answer. And they often were delighted that I would ask because they, they might try to tell a nurse or tell a doctor and they'd get shot down. You know, oh, that was just the effect of, of the, uh, right. you know, the shutting down of the optic nerve or your brain shutting down or, or the anesthesia you were under or, you know, it was a hallucination, yada, da, 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 you know. And you'd think after, because they must have heard these stories maybe not as often as I did, but um, it reached the point where they knew the nursing staff and the doctors knew that this was a real interest of mine. And I, um, and they would call me, they would say, I have a patient that just told me a remarkable story and I don't believe a word of it, but you ought to go in and talk to them about it because you can probably comfort them. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I would, and I, and I'd hear these great, great stories and I finally, I said, gee, you know, I'd like to go back to school and get a doctorate in this. And, and you know, with the near, all these great near-death stories I'd heard. Well, it turns out I couldn't use any of them because of patient confidentiality. Oh. The hospital said there's no way you can use any of the stories that you've heard, even with their permission, uh, unless you've got it in writing. And, well, a lot of these people had either finally died or they had left and I had no contact information. <clears throat> So that's when I met Ions and because uh, I needed a source for these stories. And, and I found uh, Diane Corcoran, who was the president, mm-hmm. and, um, and I went to the first Ions conference. For people that are interested in near-death studies, they really should attend one of these Ions conferences because they are fascinating. We were going to have a, a really great one in Salt Lake City this year, but of course because of this – COVID-19, we're not going to be able to do it. They're doing it online, which will be fine, but it won't be the same. You know, it's, Zoom cannot replace. Uh, Human interaction. A, uh, yeah. yeah a, when you get a room full of people who've had near-death experiences, the electricity is, you know, un, undeniable. Right. So uh, so that's when, and, and that first conference, and Diane and I got to know each other, and she said, you know, we're looking for uh, someone to be a uh, publications director, and you've had all this publishing background. Why don't you, why don't you do that? I said, well, geez, I just joined your organization, but mm-hmm. sure, why not? That? When was that? When did all this begin I'm that you met Diane? I'm trying to think. Well, I, I, went, I went back to school. Let's see. I graduated in 2010 with my doctorate. So it must have been know, 2005, maybe somewhere right in there, mm-hmm. and um, and uh, and I did a column. I I was the editor of Vital Signs, and I did a column called Out of My Tree, and I would sort of speculate on all this stuff. But um, mainly, we were publishing stories about or from near death experiencers, and finally, I said along with everything else, I said to Diane one day, you know, we really ought to do something more with this. Why don't I start a little radio show? Because I'd had some radio background at Columbia. I was at WKCR, which is a, the, that, uh, the radio station for, for, it was called King's College back in those days. Mm-hmm. Columbia University broadcast all of New York. We had a, quite a listening audience. 
still going strong. And then I'd done community radio in Maine. I'd done a, a show called Earth Tones, which was uh, Native American music and uh, Eastern music. So I had this background and, I, and an interest, always had an interest in radio anyway. And my brother had this company called Talk Zone, which was also producing shows. So he said, well, come on, you know, I won't charge you. Because nice. Ions, <laughs> Ions had no uh, no money for this project, so I, I knew that. Uh, but I, anyway, long story short, once again, uh, I am about four shows ahead of you. You're, this is your 340th show. I'm about 345. So I've been doing this for um, seven years, almost seven years now. Great. And the, the information is... Oh, gosh, you know, well, you know, it's so overwhelming. These stories are so amazing and so profound and so simple and so personal. Each one of these stories is personalized. It's not like you got one near-death story, you got them all. It's not like that at all. Each each story is, um, it's almost as if it was specifically consciously designed for your, for your, uh, to witness to you. And to give you direction as to where you're going next in your life. So, Lee, can I ask you? Well, a couple of things come to mind. Is I was just thinking, you telling your story. Your episodes are a half hour, and your guest is doing the talking. I feel so privileged that we get to hear your story. So, I'm thrilled oh. about that. <laughs> thrilled. I just because I know what it's like on the other side of this so well. Um, <laughs> What did I want to ask you? Oh, yes. If we were to be on the skeptic side, all this research and things, how do you know it's not just the brain shutting down? How do you know that these are real? Oh, the vertical evidence is overwhelming. People who have observed things, they say, they will say, for instance, oh, I was on the operating table and all of a sudden I was up above looking down and I saw the doctors do, trying to get my heart started again. You know, they were doing CPR and, and, uh, one doctor was, um, I don't know, doing some peculiar gesture or saying things they were saying, you know, swearing, you know, and then I went through the wall and I saw my family in the other room and they didn't realize that, that I, that I had died, but they were very nervous because it was a serious operation. And I heard my grandmother say, I haven't smoked in years, but I'm going outside to have a cigarette. Mm -hmm. Later on, you know, they're back in their body and they can, they, they say to the doctor, well, I heard you swearing. <laughs> no, no, that's not possible. And, or, you know, to the grandmother. So you, you had to go out and have a cigarette because of me, right? She, you know, and their eyes widen. There are, literally countless stories about this, about these things that happen. People that uh, are out of their body and overhear things or learn things that they would never have known otherwise mm -hmm. or come back with gifts, gifts of prophecy, gifts of healing, um, uh, psychic gifts, physical gifts. Um, another story I've told before, but I'll, I'll say again, um, uh, was a, this um, woman who had run into a tree and she said, I was st standing outside my body looking in at the car and my crumpled body in the car. And it was a you know, total mess. She said, I turned around and she said, and she was not, she'd never been 
interested in religion at all. She said, I saw this person. And I said, this is Jesus. And Jesus said, it's not your time yet. You've got to go back into that body. She's back in her body. Their EMTs are prying the car apart with the jaws of life. And they say, she'll never make it to the hospital. She makes it to the hospital. She'll never make it through CAT scan. She makes it through CAT scan. She'll never make it through the operation when she needed several operations. And then in rehab, they said she'll never walk again. And two weeks later, she walked out of the hospital, totally healed, miraculously healed, and uh, seriously a Christian at that point. But, uh, but it's not necessarily does it have anything to do with, with religion. It's just that um, it, these, these events are very personal and very meaningful and very life transforming, although at the time you may not realize it, and it may not, you may not see physic, uh, physical or mental or uh, psychological effects for years, but they happen uh, over time, and they're great gifts. They're great gifts not only to the person that receives them, they're a wonderful gift to, to the people that can hear these stories, because it is, it's God is still speaking, you know, it's not all in the Bible. Every one of these stories is like a as profound a mystical experience as Paul had when he went to the third heaven, you know, he describes his a near death experience. St. Paul had, you know, he was stoned to death and he said, I, I went to the third heaven and, uh, uh, you know, heard wondrous things that I can't repeat. You know, it was a, it was an NTE. And, uh, I think a lot of the material that we consider sacred scripture, be it, Jewish or Christian or or any other religion comes as a result of people who've had near death experiences uh, and their the visions and the encounters and the and the messages that they were given to relate when they got back. Pretty neat. Are there certain basic elements? I mean, I know for as many people as had them, there's that many different stories. But are there some certain elements that seem common through many of them? Well, I think uh, probably getting out of your body is, is, is very common. And sometimes it doesn't go much further than that. I mean, I, when I drowned, for instance, um, I, I did, had no memory of going anywhere. And yet, I, did I tell you about the dream that I had afterwards? I had a recurring no. dream uh, that I was sinking down, sinking down in a, into a dark, dark enclosed place and there was a light above me and I was sinking away from the light and the way I interpreted that dream at the time was um, I, I was sinking down into the water and that was the that was the light was the sun on the surface of the water and so when I was in my 20s I went back to the cottage it's still in the family and dove in and dove down and just to see if the way I remembered it was real. It wasn't at all like that. The light was all across the whole surface of the lake, and the darkness wasn't really dark around me. And it wasn't until I started many years later reading uh, accounts of near-death experience and the tunnel and the light and so forth that I thought, I wonder if, if maybe instead of just sitting in that birch tree, I had started the journey you know, toward that light and then decided no and come back. And um, and then interpret and then dreamt it and dreamt it and dreamt it because it was a it was a vivid recurring dream. Speaking about vivid, 
from the NDE people that I've spoken to, whether it was seven years old or however many years ago, it seems to me people can remember it like it was just yesterday. Do you, are you able to have clarity on your? Yes. Uh, and I think that's true. Um, one of the problems is that, um, the more, I think this is just a psychological thing that, that they've discovered about memory is that the more you, the more you revisit the memory, the more it becomes less, um, it's not that it isn't as vivid, but it becomes less uh, what authentic. Um, it's not the same. It's not the same as the first time you you recount it, and that's why I loved my hospital job so much because I was talking to people who had just had mm-hmm. uh, these these near death experiences, and so it was so fresh, and it wasn't colored by see. Th- the, there are big questions about consciousness that have not yet been fully answered, although Evan Alexander and others are looking at this stuff. But what is it that um, – what? It, where does this memory come from? It's When I'm talking to you about my near-death experience, it's coming from my brain. But how did my brain get it? Because my brain wasn't there when I – well, my brain wasn't out of my body, obviously. Right. My mind was my con- there's a consciousness, a soul, if you will. I like the word soul. It mm-hmm. work, works for me. Uh, and somehow or other, that soul has the capacity of translating into those people who do remember near-death experiences that uh, the the details of that near-death experience. But when you when you go to rec- recall it, I think you're at the mercy of your brain, like every other memory, and so even though this is a very vivid and special memory because it, 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 you know, it was astounding, you know, it was like any astounding thing that happens in your life. It's still being represented by your brain rather than by your soul. So it's, um, and maybe that's one reason why they sound so personalized. You know, I'm not beyond questioning that part of it, that it may be, uh, that our brain wants to add things to uh put it in put it back in the three-dimensional world Mm -hmm. um that's uh you know because there are some things that just all near-death experiencers will first say i don't have words i have no way to explain what i saw it was so miraculous and then they'll go out and write books (laughs) make movies you know go on speaking tours because uh They've found words, but it's really the brain that's found the words. It's not the soul that's found the words. Interesting. Do you, what about atheists? Have you interviewed any atheists that didn't believe in anything? Yeah, they have to. Well, that woman that ran into the tree, she, she didn't believe in anything. And then there was Jesus Mm -hmm. telling her that she had to go back in her body. No, atheists have to, either they're going to, just lie to themselves outright about it if they recall it, but you can't, you really can't. Uh, it's very hard to rationalize away a, a real near death experience. And so I think lots of, lots of atheists, they may not believe in a, in a God after that, but I think they have to believe that there's an afterlife. Mm-hmm. How about this life review we hear about? What do you know about that? 
Oh, that's a very interesting thing. That is, uh, that's walking a mile in the other guy's shoes for every event in your life. Holy it, cow. <laughs> <laughs> and quickly, is, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, because it, it happens all at once. You know, you're going into a timeless space and all these events can merge. You, you get that in, in dreams sometimes um, where where lots of events that that took place at different times of your life are all kind of pushed together. And maybe you feel guilty about them or you feel happy about them. But in, in any event, um, the near-death experience review uh, – goes back as far as uh, Plato's story about the soldier Ur who, who who was killed in the battlefield. And the, the story is, it's in uh, Plato's Republic. His body's brought back, placed on a funeral pyre. And just as they're lighting the fire, he sits up and says, I've been sent back to tell you what uh, what happens when you die. And I, I won't take you through the whole thing, but he he says, we were running across this field, this beautiful field, and we came to a place of judgment. And uh, there were there were these judges. Now a lot of life reviews talk about judges sitting behind a a desk or a or a dock of some sort. And he said, <clears throat> he Plato said, uh, those who were judged to be good went to a, a place of reward, and those who had failed or had were judged to be bad went to a place of punishment. And then, but it wasn't permanent. And then after they went through this, they all got together and out in the field <laughs> talking about what they'd seen, what they'd experienced, you know, the good guys and the bad guys alike. Mm -hmm. And then they go on and they get reborn. They drink from the river of forgetfulness. They forget these past lives and past experiences and they go on and get reborn. Uh, but that, I mean, that was the first, uh, you know, written account that I have, but the, everyone's got uh, a different idea about what their um, life review was like, you know, whether they saw everything pass in front of their eyes, uh, which is way pre near death experience. I mean, that's just a story that's part of the culture that says, you know, when you die, your life passes before your eyes. Uh, it can be that it can be, uh, Everything I did to people, I experienced from their point of view. So if I hurt someone's feelings, I felt the pain that they felt when I'd done that. And that's why I say, you know, a mile in, in everyone's shoes all at once. Because, you know, we cause a lot of, we can inadvertently, or sometimes on purpose, we can cause people pain in, in, uh, in our lives. What about the flip side? Do you see the good you've done? Oh, I think so. I think that has to be part of it. I certainly hope so. I mean, it would be pretty depressing if it were just <laughs> just the the bad stuff. Yeah, I think it's good as well. How well, and I've talked to several people, many people I've interviewed as well, and they they saw the good that experience and also the ripple effect of that. And I think for myself, every time I want to tell a white lie, I think if I have to revisit this, <laughs> maybe it's best I have integrity. I'd like to ask you, Lee, about uh, people seeing loved ones on the other side. Well, uh, very common. And um, I wonder sometimes, you know, there's 
as as I said before, there's no time over there. There's, it's a timeless place. So if you uh, encounter relatives who died decades before or more, you know, how do you explain the fact that they, you know, they might have wanted to reincarnate or maybe they did reincarnate. I mean, the time scale, um, it's, it's, it's very, it's very hard to understand timelessness. Uh, yes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> from, uh, from our point of view, I mean, now at, at some point in the future, when we're over there on the other side, it'll make perfect sense to us, I'm sure. But from here, you know, you think, gosh, how could I be meeting my great grandmother? Uh, surely she's gone on to, you know, to do something else or be somewhere else. And yet, um, uh, I heard, I've heard stories of people who've seen generations and generations of people going back and back and back into, uh, it's like, uh, reverse reincarnation, I guess. I don't know, but th they will, they'll talk about, uh, it's like a tunnel of family connections going back generations and generations. On the other hand, it can be as simple as a, one woman. I said, uh, well, what did you see when you were on the other side? She said, I saw my father. He, he died three years before she, he said he was just standing there. And she said, it was just like I was a little girl again, because I wanted to, I saw this beautiful light behind him and I, I wanted to run into that light. And I said, I want to, I want to go there. And he said, no, it's not your time. You have to go back. And she said, I, just like a little girl, and this is a woman in her sixties, I think fifties or sixties. She, she said, I was just like, I was a little girl trying to run around my father, but he grabbed me and he said, no, you've got to go back. And then I was back in my body and, uh, she was so happy that I'd asked her about it, and she was so delighted that she'd seen her father, and she was so so reassured that there's nothing to fear when you die because the, there are family, friends, angels, God, Jesus, whoever, they're there for you. This um, feeling of unconditional love and love that people have never experienced, I'm assuming people have shared that with you as well. Uh, yes, um, there is a, there's an interesting thing, a, a, a theory that I have that people for the most part do not want to hear. Uh oh. And, <laughs> <laughs> and that is that, um, well, there, there are a couple of things there are, there are, um, first of all, the only fair thing in this world is reincarnation because how can you say, uh, you know, how can you compare your life, a blessed life, with the life of some poor kid born in the Cairo dumps, spends his life, you know, picking picking garbage out of the dumps to make a living? I mean, we we at some point need a balance, and the only balance that I can see in dealing with life itself is um, uh, reincarnation. So. If, once you figure that everyone has a has had a fair shot at being either potentially good or potentially bad, um, then there's there is a, a balance. There's a reason for for a judgment at some point. There are two judgments 
described in the Bible. The first one is the beam of judgment. It's Jesus, and it's going to be loving every time. And I think that's the one we go through when we have a near-death experience. It's almost always unconditional love. It's to remind you that God is unconditional love. And the, the second judgment is, the, it's the sheep and the goats story in the Bible about um, God separates the sheep from the goats and said uh, to the sheep, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was, uh, you know, when I was in prison, you came and visited me. And and uh, they say, Lord, when did we, when did uh, we do that? Whenever you did it for someone else, you did it for me. And then the the reverse was true for the goats. And so they say, goats be gone, <laughs> uh, and sheep, you're saved. Well, it's it, it's pretty rough, and and uh, that's not necessarily the way it happens. But I think it it's it, it's worth bearing in mind that that's a, a potential. Now. The theory that I, that makes people unhappy is not that one. It's this one, that ultimately, through all of our lifetimes and through all of the levels of heaven that we go through, the ultimate goal is for us to merge back into the oneness of God, to become the light, to become the love that we recognize as unconditional love, that we merge with that spirit, that we lose our egos entirely. We lose our identity. I really, I really think that that is. Now, it may take a thousand lifetimes and and seven levels of heaven to get there, mm-hmm. but I think that's God's ultimate goal: is for us to become egoless, uh, absolute love, and that's that's only one source of that. Now, people will go around saying. Well, I've got God in me. I've got a spark of God. The Quakers say we, well, there's a spark of God in every one of us, and I believe that. I do. But but we are in a world of duality here, and this is a world that uh, that ego drives us just as much as love, and probably more, more. so in many cases. Yeah, <laughs> I think so. And, and it's a it's a corrupting influence because it's that thing that keeps us apart. It keeps us from empathy it keeps us from compassion and uh, those are the things that we have to practice while we're here so that we can learn how to ultimately give up ourselves and become one with god i've heard people say that as well merging with the light and so many people are terrified by that and i think that's the ego that's terrified exactly when it it is that thousand lifetimes and you get there it's probably the natural thing to do you know (laughs) it is it is it won't happen to you until you're ready for it I don't know how how your time is going. I can tell we, you one last. We can keep talking. We're we're good. One last NDE that that describes this perfectly it was the first. I think it was the first uh, conference that I had gone to, uh, Ian's conference, and it was the last bus to the airport after the conference. And there was one guy and myself on the bus, and I, and I've always thought <laughs> this was meant to be. I said, "Well, tell me your story," you know. He said, okay, he said, I was um, 21, I've forgotten what what caused his near-death experience, but he said, I was was there, I was, the light was beautiful, and I was merging with the light, he said, it was, it was so intense and so wonderful, and then he said, all of a sudden, I had this, this momentary doubt, I said, I'm only 21, I've, I've, I've never really lived, and he said, immediately, I was out, and in a waiting room, 
waiting to go back into my body. And I thought, that's, I think that's it. You know, he, and he, he spent his life as an EMT or a nurse a practitioner, some medical thing in some, one of the remotest places in, in Alaska. And, uh, and it's given his life in service, you know, I mean, he's, he's been, I, I'm no doubt a wonderful person to native Americans and, and all of that. Um, but the ego is a powerful, powerful thing in our lives. And it, and it, it's, will turn us away from God at every chance it gets. Somebody so told me ego stands for edging God out. Oh, nice. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> and I was going to ask you about service because you you just brought it up as I was before I, I wrote it down, you brought it up. So it's almost like you read my mind. But it seems that many people who have NDEs come back in of some way, some shape or form being of service. Oh, I think so. I think it, it it provokes um, a desire to be compassionate, even in people that, you know, never had thought about it much before. And it ruins a lot of people's lives. I mean, people wind up getting divorced. They have a near-death experience, and all of a sudden they don't want to be a stockbroker anymore. Uh-huh. They're no longer interested in hedge funds. They want to go uh, work with the poor or work, you know, take a job like, like that one I had in uh, uh, Harlem uh, they they feel so um, uh, desirous of connecting, you know, connecting with people. That's one of the thing, great things about those IONS conferences, like I said. You know, you, you meet other people who've had the same experience, and it's such a joy to, to meet other people who've had near-death experiences and be with them for a while and, talk, and, you know, share not only the stories, but just sort of the electricity of it. But... Um, no, I think service is a, is a natural outcome, uh, but it, sometimes it takes forever. You know, people have got life ex, life situations, and uh, that they'll comp, they'll make compromises. You have to, you know, it's a world of duality. Yeah, I, I'm just remembering yeah. a story. I was sitting on an airplane with a gentleman, and we ended up ordering a couple glasses of wine. Total stranger, and he had he just it just felt like this guy had deep grief and it's deep sadness. And so, you know, I started peeling back the layers, just chatting with him. He was about my age and come to find out he never let go of the guilt from when his two boys were young. Um, He had turned his back on the little one and the little one went into the lake and tried to swim and he drowned and he was resuscitated. And the, father or the little boy said to the father that he wasn't afraid he said the face and the son was there with me and he says mm-hmm. and i looked down and i could see you daddy and i wasn't afraid i mean just like this beautiful pure thing and even though it happened so many years ago i started talking to the guy about who the son became and this young man turned into somebody who was totally of service and helping troubled youths and all these things and so in just that one little airplane ride, he actually got to see how that was perfect for his son, for who he became. And this guy let go of the guilt. And it's just for all of us to feel that we may not have a near-death experience, but I, I do think that 
some of these things that happen can really get us forward on this journey of our soul um, into service. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. You're, um, that's the power of, that's why these stories have to be shared. Because when, when people feel free enough to talk about them, it can liberate the person you're sitting next to on the plane or on the bus or, you know, uh, wherever you are, you know, I've, the reason I got to doing this radio show was just to encourage people to, to talk about this stuff, you know? And so we've had people on who, who would you know, before we'd started, they'd say, you know, I never really talked to anyone about this before. Great. This is what, this is, this was a gift given to you not to be hoarded, but to be shared. You know, don't just keep it to yourself because the more you share it and the more you see people responding to it, the bigger a gift it becomes for you, too. I think more people have had near-death experiences than we know about. In my personal life, people know that I've written the book. My day job is a chef for race car teams. And even in the racing community, I had one race car driver who says, what's what's this book about, Sandra? And I, I told him. And he says, well, I can tell you when I was 22, he had gotten into a terrible car accident. He had flatlined on a table and he said, I was in a place that made life seem just like a dream. My grandmother and grandfather were there. He says it was so clear and he knew in his heart, the right thing to do would be to come back. Um, And he felt like he was given that choice. But he says, because I didn't have a fear of death, I didn't have a fear of life. So he he ended up becoming a champion in race car driving because he said, I could take that little more step of courage towards other people couldn't and mm. uh, and and win. Not that people need to go 220 miles an hour, but incredible. <laughs> and then there was another guy who's a security uh, person at uh, one of the big, big speedways. And, the, and he also... Um, knew about my book and he had told me through a heart attack he says his mom was right there was deceased to greet him and held his hand and he was felt healthy and whole but again he had family chose to come back i think the near-death experience stories are some of the most listened to in my show because of course we talk about all kinds of reasons to believe in the afterlife but ndes are always the top um, and so to our listener right now, Lee has now, he says, 345 of these, the shorter episodes, they're half hour or so, right, Lee? That's right. Yes. And you don't just interview people that have a book. You interview everyday people with extraordinary stories. That's right. Y'all. Oh, uh- if they've written a book, um, that's fine too. Mm-hmm. Uh, no problem with that. But, but I'd love to get people before they've written the book because, um, well, it, it's it, they get good feedback usually from the show itself. They they'll get people who respond to it, and that encourages them to go ahead and and do it. So, um, yeah, well, Lee, what do you think? We're going a little bit over time, but it's my show. We could do anything. Um, the, <laughs> this purpose of this life is. Any thoughts? Uh, <clears throat> when I cleared that field um, for farming, we had 
huge bonfires. And uh, I can remember one night I was watching the, the bonfire. The sun had set and the sparks were flying off into the night. And I had this sort of mini revelation that each spark was like the individuals that we are. And we go, we take it upon ourselves to think we're little gods. We can go flying off and we can, we can be, um, uh, you know, like God. And we are like God. We've been given this, we've been given free will in a, in a sense, not, not in the circumstances of each life. I mean, a lot of lives are tied up with less than free will, but, uh, and we get that chance, but our ultimate goal is to is to reemerge with that fire. And some of us fly off and never make it back into the fire. And um, I don't know what happens, you know, on that account. But w- we have to deal with duality in this world. It's mm-hmm. just built into our physical natures. It's the it's the double helix. I've I just I just finished writing a novel about. Uh, discovering the garden of Eden. And, um, there's an, a neat thing in the Bible where it says the, uh, tree of life grew in the center of the garden. And, uh, also the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the word they use, you know, they, the, in English, it just says, you know, sort of in the middle of the garden, but the word in Hebrew means the exact middle. I mean, the precise middle of the garden. How does the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil both grow in the same place? Well, I envision like two apple trees that will twine around each other, Mm -hmm. sort of like the double helix in in DNA. And uh, that's basically what this novel is is talking about. It's talking about the nature of duality and, and how it's intrinsic to this life. And it's absolutely anathema to the next life. And, uh, and I think in the foreword, I say something like, um, there are two things. There's love, and love is what we uh, experience on the other side, pure love, mm-hmm. unifying oneness of love. And in this world, we have compassion. And that compassion is f- to be shared with the other, because this is a world of otherness. And so we have to learn, we have to practice. We are here on earth to learn compassion so that when the time comes, we'll be able to learn the true merging with love. Beautiful. And I wanted to ask you, just because you were researching this and thinking about it so much, the end of times, did you? is that still oh, a what? common thread <laughs> running through? Well, I mean, look at look at this. I mean, we're destroying ourselves. The environment is on the edge of on the brink of destruction. I mean, we're we have as we have quadrupled the population on this planet. We've have the wildlife. We've have the insect life. Uh, we are, you know, the oceans are filling up with plastic and radiation. Mm. We are destroying the possibility of reincarnating into a world that's, you know, this this is. This was our garden. I mean, this is our practice point. I don't know why God would want us to go into that third heaven that that uh, everyone describes as being, you know, supernally beautiful and and you know, with every plant glowing. If if we 
mess this world up as much as it looks like we're doing. I don't know why you'd even want us to go there. And, and uh, one person who had a near-death experience said, I was in this beautiful field and there was this beautiful flower just glowing. And I picked it. And as soon as I picked it, the color started to fade out of it. And it, it looked, got sick. She said, well, so I put it back down on the ground and immediately it sprang back in, into the beauty that it was. We, uh, you know, we have the capacity to turn this back into a Garden of Eden here, or we have the capacity to absolutely destroy it. And uh, we seem to be doing that, sadly. Mm, well, I don't give up hope very easily. And I'm finding just in this time, and even the many people I've talked to, housebound, lockdown, of course, we have the fear of the future and what could happen, but I'm finding so many people are getting back in touch or even if they've never had any spirituality, they're finding it. So it may just be a turning of tides. In the- well, I, I think this has been a, a real message. COVID-19 was not just a, a, an accident waiting to happen. This was a, this was a spirit. This contains a lot of spiritual truth. You know, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, the first, the one, the antichrist is how he's a, how he's uh, interpreted by some Christians who comes with a bow and no arrows. The arrows are invisible. The arrows are disease. It's Mm. plague. And, um, and I think that is, you know, we don't have to have the other three horsemen come riding in with death, destruction and war and famine and, and all of that. If we, if we learn the first lesson, uh, well enough, we can, we can pull ourselves out of this. I'm, I tend to be hopeful too. I mean, I'm, cru- I'm a crusader for hopefulness. You know, Amen, I came brother. out of the, Amen. the first, the first Earth Day lives on in my heart. So, oh, sweet. Well, I have hope, and I want to share. And I know that sometimes I'm trying to even think. Like a little spark is turned into a little flame, and can turn into a big fire. Good, big mm-hmm. fire of good. So I think mm-hmm. your I want to thank you, first of all, for your commitment to service and human beings and all the different ways you serve. But I think within us, it can just be one 30-minute interview that can spark something and set people forward on their journey. So I want to thank you for your contributions, both to being a Listener as a chaplain and all the good you do there and being a pastor and just the commitment you've had to IANS and being of service. I've absolutely loved our time together, Lee. <laughs> oh, this has been great. We will uh, visit it again when I interview you. That's right. That's right. But until then, <laughs> for the best way people can listen to your show, is it, uh, like I said at the beginning, IANS.org, and then they can click on NDE Well, if Radio? they just... If they just go to NDE Radio or IONS NDE Radio, there are apps now, uh, Apple and Google uh, apps for IANDS uh, NDE Radio, and uh, that that gives you access to all of the past shows. Or if they go into just Google NDE Radio and hit the past shows button, and there are 345 or so shows right right there waiting for them. Oh, that's great. Somebody had just written me later, you don't have enough NDE stories. And I said, well, I've got something good to share. And I sent your link. (laughs) (laughs) 
good. Oh. Well, I'll 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 let you know when I when this when my novel comes out because uh, that it's based on Andy uh, stories that I've heard and uh, and uh, a, a lot of it you know a lot of the visions in it are are NDE based so mm, well, beneath beneath a phoenix door it's a, a search for the Garden of Eden. How about a final? thought something we can take with us in our life maybe to use today or this week when i go out to walk the dog every day i have this little prayer uh sister faustina says for the for the sake of his sorrowful passion have mercy on us and on the whole world and it's just a, such a sweet little prayer. And for us, you can insert anything you want. It can be a, a loved one or an enemy or you're just wishing the whole world uh, health and healing and love. And uh, in Castine, Maine, there are still some of the uh, elm trees, the huge old elm trees that have died off in practically every other part of the country. But because Castine is almost like an island itself, somehow or other, some of these elms have been preserved, although not as many as when I first came here. And uh, so I try to say a prayer on every elm tree as I go by. It just works for me. For the sake of his sorrowful passion, have mercy on us and on the whole world. Oh, thank you very much, Lee. Thank you for well, being thank, our guest. Thank you, Sandra. This has been great. Great. I look forward to interviewing you oh it'd be that well i'll give my all is all i can tell you (laughs) and for our listener thank you for taking the time to be with lee and myself always gives great pleasure to talk to a like-minded person who is being of service and loves to investigate himself the home base for this show is we don't die radio.com and now you can find 340 episodes of it uh also we have a facebook page and it's a I mean, a Facebook group, there's over 5,000 people involved and we don't die listeners if you're a Facebook user. And I don't know if you're like me, but in our day-to-day life, how many people can we just talk to about this? Maybe not so many, but in this group, you can talk about (laughs) it. Absolutely. You can also, if you join, it's my email list, but I call it the insiders club, a little fancy name there. You'll receive, it says a few chapters of my book, but when you start reading it, you'll realize it's the whole book and a very healing audio called How to Survive Grief. We've just started um, doing Sunday services online and it's a non-denominational service, quite beautiful. I am committed to keeping it going even after our lockdown days. So you can find that too there as well. So one last time, take a look at IAMS.org if you're interested in near-death experiences and the whole world. Uh, there will be an online conference, I believe, in August. Is that right, Lee? Uh, I think they're keeping it. The um, Salt Lake City conference was going to be over Labor Day weekend, so I expect they'll probably be doing uh, this um, virtual conference at about the same time. But uh, you can find it on iands.org website. Yep. And then yep. also look for NDE radio. And if you want more great episodes, there's 345 as of this date that we're talking. 
So Lee, thank you for being our guest listener. Thank you so much for being with us. You may feel on this day that you're sitting there alone listening to this, but you, my friend, are surrounded by a whole force of invisible beings cheering you on someday, but not too soon. You'll close your eyes for the last time here on earth, open them, and you'll be surrounded like you're crossing a finish line. Your life, though, right now is for a purpose. And like Lee said about duality, sometimes we feel the pain and then we feel the joy and the love. And sometimes it takes looking back to realize why bad things happen or the tough things happen. So with that, my name is Sandra Champlain. I'm always so happy to be your host on We Don't Die Radio. I do believe that life is an education for the soul and that your life here on earth is important. Really like to thank you for listening and we'll see you soon. Mm-hmm.